don't start with thinking you can change the world. But what you can do is you can help somebody do something. So when you wake up, be kind, do something for somebody, go out of yourself, give to somebody else that means it more than you do. And if it's just one person, you're still doing the right thing. Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas, one of the co-hosts. We have a very special guest today, Jerry Hoyer, with us. Jerry has been an owner or president of Get This over 100 companies. That's right, 100. He's coming to us from his home in Hermosa Beach, California. Jerry, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate you having me on. Well, I'm a little scared, a little intimidated. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very intimidating. Very intimidating. If anybody needs to be intimidated, it's me because I've not been involved in anywhere near 100 businesses. And so, We'll get to that. Maybe that's our teaser. Usually we start, Jerry, by talking about where you grew up, what your family was like. Uh, was there any faith involved? Where were you in the birth order? Just that kind of thing. Tell us about your growing up. Well, I had a, I had a great upbringing. I was born in Illinois and lived on a little hobby farm of my grandparents. My parents had built the house on one side of it and uh, northern element on the border of Wisconsin. I have uh, two brothers, an older brother and a younger brother, and we had uh, we lived there for five years and then moved to California. My dad worked for, I think we've talked about this in the past, the uh, Huff Company, which got bought out by International Harvester, and he got transferred to California. And we lived in uh, Orange County, Placentia, for two years, and then he got transferred back because their headquarters was in Chicago. And then we moved around a few times in northern Illinois, and my mom missed the warm summers, California, and anybody that's lived in the Midwest, especially around Lake Michigan, knows that wind and the cold is something else to deal with, and she's a little five-foot peanut, and uh, she, she dripped on him until he found a, uh, a job in, in Southern California. So when I was 13, we moved back. To California permanently. So I've been there 50 plus years. But because of my childhood moving around, and I was a middle child, and I had a brilliant older brother and a very talented athletic brother, younger brother, I was kind of lost in the middle. I was painfully shy and uh, still am very shy and, and, and quite introverted. So I've had this adventure that God's put me on that is. Uh, Something I would have never scripted for myself. I wanted to be independent, but I never dreamed it would take on the path that I've been on. Well, tell us, uh, so was there some uh, culture shock for you moving? Well, moving a bunch of, there's two interesting things about that. That, Well, a lot of things actually, but the couple that pop out to me is all the moving and did that have to build some adaptability in you? Yeah, I, I think uh, some of that, Framing and uh, and experience helped me in business because I'm I'm a, a collaborator. I'm not a dictator kind of uh, leader. 
and I've often had almost every single business I've had partners in. And I functioned very well with partners, played team sports growing up, but I think that part comes into it. Um, but I went to eight different schools my first nine years of school. Yeah. So, wow. And was an okay student. You know, ironically, I was thinking about this morning, I was a CB student in Illinois and an A student in California because schools were easier in California. So whenever we were moving west, school-wise, I was pretty happy. Oh, wow. Interesting. A lot of, lot of pressure on education by my parents. So. Okay. Was there any culture shock from Chicago to California? It seemed like two different cultures. Or did you feel that as a kid? I don't think I felt that as a kid. I think you might today. But yeah. Well, cool. And then where does, sort of where does college take you? Or this, this year? So I went to, uh, out of high school, I went to originally Biola University, Christian College in Southern California for one semester. And, um, decided it was going to be way too hard. And uh, I was an okay student, but it was not my passion. I was trying to get the box checked for my parents. So I came up with this. Uh, at the time, there was a university travel program through Chapman College in Southern Cal semester at sea. So I went around the world, but the agreement was my parents after that said, that's enough is enough. Then you go to state school. So I got a grand education. I ended up graduating from Cal State Fullerton. And after I graduated from there, I'd been working for my dad. He had a small hydraulic pneumatic arts business that is what he sent along when he came out. And I'd work in his warehouse in summers or vacations and stuff. And then well, after graduating, I, I was sending out resumes and was fortunate enough that uh, Nissan the distributor gave me an interview and I got lucky enough to meet the right kind of guy that took a liking to me and I uh, got hired at the time I was 21. So, and I worked for Nissan for six years. So that's how I got into the car business. And, um, through that career, got to know some people in the, in the retail side of the business car dealership side. And I joined a gentleman that had four stores and then eventually became his COO and partner. And we built it up and sold it to AutoNation back in the late uh, 90s. And uh, then I worked for AutoNation for 10 years running California, originally Southern California and then California. But in between that, I've had other businesses. In fact, uh, one of my thorns in my side was because I think. Not every business is easy. Not every business is successful. I had a, a brilliant idea that people were making a lot of money building spec houses in Southern California during the 80s and 90s. And uh, they were making good margin and, you know, buying a lot, especially where I live, it's already built out. So you have to buy something and tear it down that's older. But the problem with that business model is you always were chasing property. They're always trying to find the thing. So I thought, well, that a buddy of mine was interested in starting a company and that we ended up starting a yacht company because we figured, okay, if we build a yacht that in spec. And then uh, at the time there was production constraints around the world. So we uh, negotiating got off this slot and it's Taiwanese boat builder for 15 mega yachts and uh, built our first one, struggled to sell it, but sold it. 
and then we had, uh, I think, over 10 orders, really good margins. And then the banking crisis hit, and uh, the market went from, you know, 100% sales price till that you couldn't give them away at 20%. Wow. You know, so this is 08, 09? Yep. And so that one was painful. But were you still working in the car business? Was that a side deal or was that full time? Yeah, it started as while well, I was still in the car business, but I had retired thinking I was done in 07. Okay. And uh, and I had been thinking that I could sit on the couch and relax a little bit. But, you know, the loss in the, in the yacht business, as well as uh, my wife was probably tired of me sitting around doing nothing. So I, I took a year off. And in 08, 09, went back to my, my core strength, which was car dealerships and some real estate. Bought some dealerships at the bottom, which was good timing, and uh, got back into it. Now I'm on the last phase of getting out. I'm down to one dealership. Um, okay. Well, let, let, let's rewind the clock a little bit. One, a couple of things. One is, so growing up, now you mentioned Biola and... And you had a good family, but what what was the uh, what was the faith component to your uh, to your upbringing or early life? Is yeah, I think while we were in the Midwest, we went to some pretty good churches, but we really our faith as a family, and including for my parents and my dad made that. I think he left International Harvester to be a good dad. He made a big sacrifice. He had a good career. He took us giant step back economically and position-wise, so that he could be home more because he was gone a lot. And they loved this church that they had been in for two years when they were out in California. It was First Evangelical Free Church in Fullerton, and somewhere along the line, Chuck Swindoll came in there, you know, and that's kind of the teaching that I grew up in. My older brother and my faith were two years apart, and then my younger brother's five years, so much closer growing up just physically with my older brother because we have more in common. But in high school, he really became on fire for the Lord and dedicated his life and, and then kind of drugged me along. And um, through that, we had a campus crusade ministry at our high school, and uh, that was good. And so we were very involved in that that ministry as well as our church to a little lesser degree, but you know, every Sunday my parents were very involved. My dad was church chairman for years. Ironically, I, my beautiful wife's father was on staff there. So we were, you know, one of those couples that were uh, put together through our faith in the church. Okay. That's helpful for some context. And, and I know we kind of maybe skipped a pretty much later in the career, maybe just we don't have to go through every transaction because, as we said at the top of the show, there's there's been over a hundred of them. But maybe just walk us through what was that transition like from the parts side of the business to the dealership? How did that kind of go down? And then can you kind of talk about that sort of formative relationship you had with that new employer? Yeah, so yeah, I, I was working for Nissan, the corporation, and and most likely I enjoyed basketball, played in high school, and. Well, I was playing on the weekends a lot with some of one of the key executives of Nissan. So he avoided some transfers for me while we were playing. I, I always say I, my basketball kept me in Southern California. And Leah, my wife, 
was not excited about moving and my contemporaries were getting transferred all over the U.S. And so I knew that it would be a limited time before that would at some point be faced with. So I was looking at how could I take what I've learned here and go to something that's a little more entrepreneurial, which is by nature to begin with. And a gentleman that I'd called on as a Jack, this is old date me, a Datsun dealer or dealerships. And I joined him when I was 25. So I'd worked for, no, 27. I'd worked for Nissan for six years, got to know him. And he ended up being a great mentor, a great business. And um, at the time I joined him, he had four. He was just opening his fifth. And back then, that was not super common because the manufacturers pretty much dictated that they wanted you to be exclusive to them. But it started to break down. And we built it up to 15, and I got equity after the first couple, two, three years because we had some good success in the stores I was involved in. And worked with him for 15 years, and that's when we sold it to Auto. Yeah. Was that kind of a family business when you joined it? Or I think of a lot of those as being kind of family deals or or not. Yeah, I, I mean, it was family in the sense that he and his high school friend yeah. owned it together, and they owned the four stores together. But their family, while they... They at times had little jobs here or there that they jumped in and out of in between schooling or whatever. None of the family really came and worked in the business. So over time, um, I kind of became that role in some way. Bill, my partner slash boss, really took a liking to me. And he was, you know, not a believer, um, but wildly successful, but also somewhat self-serving and and not generous and uh but very good to his family very good very loyal to his employees so he was a good employer but he just wasn't wired like what we're talking about today i hope we're gonna get i'm sure we're gonna get to yeah my heart is yeah i've been i've been blessed in spite of myself yeah um i think we would all admit we we didn't get to pick where we were born. We didn't get to pick the opportunities that have been put in front of us. So let's go ahead and kind of maybe parallel your business transition with that. You know, as you start to have more control over businesses, maybe you can kind of implement your worldview a little bit more and use that platform for generosity a little more. And so... So, okay, so you're working for Nissan, you get in the dealership business, you grow that business, you sell to AutoNation, you're working there. I mean, now that's a big public company, right? So, but then, then kind of what happens? So where does the sort of generosity piece kind of come into play for you? Is it all along the way? Is it kind of building along that time frame? Does it happen maybe after AutoNation? Where, where does that sort of start happening for you? Yeah, I think it was modeled by my parents. They were selfless servants in a lot of ways and they would spend their money helping people more than they would spend it on themselves and so i i can't remember a time where i wasn't taught to be generous and i think it became natural and then as i felt my greatest joy that i've ever felt and still feel is when i help somebody Mm. 
And so it's just a natural feeling for me to want to be Jeff and to get. And so Leanne and I, when we first got married, we weren't making a lot of money uh, at all, but we each, you know, we, we gave money to our church and some ministries that we were involved in, but we each picked a, a ministry. She loved World Vision and I loved Prison Fellowship because I, I was a little bit of a knucklehead at times. And, uh, I always felt like had I not been born with the right kind of surroundings, I might have been in prison myself and just had a great empathy for the plight of the inmates and the inmates' family. So I had that, and she had passion for the disenfranchised and unserved around the world and felt like World Vision was a good, good avenue for that. And to this day, we're still doing it. Do you go into the prisons, or are you more on the fundraising side? How do you get involved in the prison fellowship? On the prison fellowship, I've, I've, I've only gone out when I've had friends, of course. It's just been rare, but it's, so it's always been on the fundraising side. Now, Leanne on the World Vision and our kids have all gone on mission trips with World and Orange. Just you do, we don't have to get into all the details. Unfortunately, we don't have time for it. But I think it, I think it is going to be interesting to some people out there about your kids. You have a, adopted kids, right? Yep, yep. Three wonderful kids, 30, 34, and going to be uh, twenty-seven tomorrow. So, and they're my wife and I are Caucasian, and our kids are biracial. So we were early in the in that. Uh, they camped, and that was something God brought on our doorstep that we didn't plan for. And but it's been an unbelievable blessing, and has created a a mosaic in our family situation that is different than most. What do you think? I mean, that's a, adopting any kids can be challenging and also a huge blessing. And and then the interracial part. I mean, I'm sure that just brings some new lessons. What what are some of the Lessons you've learned from adoption and from your kids? You know, I think I've learned a lot. Leanne would be the one to, to, to probably put words to that. But for me, you know, there was some things that I, I was very naive about. And one of them was, if I would just love my kids enough, that would be it. That would be enough. And the reality is, I think we're all born with a hole that only Jesus can fill. And I think that hole is even larger for adopted kids. Mm, interesting. And uh, my kids all have faith. They all acted out a little differently than maybe a parent would always want. But I love them, and I love them. They're all three generous. They're all three functioning well. You know, they're great human beings. I'm inspired by them all. The two girls, my, our oldest. As a designer, and she's passionate about East Africa and, and working with World Vision to end up in female genital mutilation. We build schools there. We've done, she's done multiple trips. She wants, she's in the process of trying to do a documentary because she does some TV stuff with her design stuff on HGTV. My middle daughter is a graduate of LMU out here in California Sports Medicine. And then went and did a stint as an EMT in the toughest part of LA for five years. And 
has now uh, progressed on to she had enough. I think adrenaline rush because she she liked that that stimulation, and now she's back in nursing school, and she is such a caregiver. And I think I'm so excited for her. Our son, who's 27, we adopted a little, a little differently because he was in foster care. So he was six years, or we were his sixth home uh, when he got to our house, and he was four. And so he's had a different set of issues, and he's a little bit younger than the girls, so he's had part of a sibling experience and also part of that you know, only child experience with us because the girls were out of the house. So, and sisters, but he's doing great and inspires me every day. And he's just got a job at the local school district being a um, aide for some young kids that need some help. And and the school district loves him. The parents, they, you know, he's taught skateboarding and surfing. So, they encouraged him to go try to do that. He just got that job a few weeks ago, and he's just a delight. He's got the best heart in the whole world. So, man, uh, all all good stuff has a bit with it. Yeah. Now, with that, Simon, pass the uh, that spirit of generosity down. Now, David Sims of Ballanton introduced us, and you know it's just interesting. Uh, I know you just got back from an international trip. And uh, and I know that you've you've been around Opportunity International a lot. There's just a lot of international World Visions International. I mean, I don't know what it is about the international thing uh, that, that's happening, but you kind of how do you sort of think about your sort of local, maybe domestic and international giving? Do you kind of break those down, or how do you think about the the regions? You know, that's really a good question. I I think. Um, I'm probably not as intentional as one might think. I'm more at this stage. I, I, I continually pray, God, bring in front of me the needs you want me to be involved in. Because Leanne and I haven't always been as discerning. So we've, through the years, because we've done some individual help on some people and done some stuff that hasn't always worked out well. But so we, we function more and more through organizations. But one of the things that strikes me over and over again as a business guy is the amount of return and help you can provide on a quantity of people internationally as yeah. to, to look. So that's where some of that leverage comes in. And it does take okay, because, you know, we're all children of God and we're all made in his image. And so if I can make a difference with a thousand people in Africa or five people here, I hate to think that way, but I mean, they're all important, but sometimes the money goes further outside of the U.S. And then saying we, we don't do it exclusively either way. Yeah. And you know, with a hundred deals you've been in and, and even after auto nation, right, there were a lot of other dealerships you've been in and out of and that kind of thing personally. And I think when we were talking before we started uh, recording or last time, you know, I remember uh, you saying that you kind of have a deal addiction, you know, or a business. Addiction. Is that, hot? but, but I don't, I, I don't think that's a coincidence. You know, I think God probably planted some of that in you, some of these 
skills of collaboration and doing business, and he sort of blessed you with those skills. I just think it's interesting uh, that you're around Talented and Opportunity National, World Vision, some of these places. How do you think of, how does your sort of business background, how does that influence the way you think about giving? Well, I think I think uh, as a business owner, you're always trying to do several things. Number one, take care of your, your own associates. Uh, number two, because you do that, you can take care of your customers. And number three, if you do those things, two things right, you're going to get a return on your investment uh, in my mind. So I think looking at ministries outside of the business world and when you're in the crystal world, those ministries that I think manage themselves right and have a good culture are the ones I want to be associated with. And I'm I'm remiss. I, I, I've sat on some boards for some other ministries, but not something like Opportunity or, you know, Palatine. Those that's out of my league. Uh, those people are way smarter and you know, David at Palatine and my friend Peter Thornton, who helped start that, I think. They just they have great vision for what God can do and they trust God in big ways. And uh, I think it's always awesome to see that happen. But I think I think the way people lead in culture and go to market just carry themselves. You know, humility is a very attractive trait. And arrogance is not. And somehow most organizations you can feel one or the other. Great point. That's very true. That's a subjective thing, but it's all the, it's still real, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And then one, one thing that I thought was fascinating that you told me before we started recording was that if your balance sheet grows significantly, you would consider that a failure. What do you mean by that? Well, I think at this stage of life, I think growing you're, you know, in my 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, you're, you're borrowing money from a bank, you're constantly, you know, having to give them a financial statement and they're gone for sad or whatever. You think, oh man, that's been a bad period. What I do wrong? You know, so you're always doing that. And then it's the scorecard. And I don't think that's a scorecard today for me. Now, do I still need some capital because I have one, you know, sizable business left? Yeah. But, I want to be intentional about giving it away while I can see where it goes. Because I've seen some failures where people were well-intended on how they would want their estates deployed after their demise, and it hasn't gone as well as it might have had they done a lot. And I also think, um, God, there's so much joy in giving. I'm going to have joy in heaven regardless of whether I give or not. I want the joy now here. Yeah, and I, so, you know, there's a couple of thoughts. You know, there's the old line, uh, uh, you know, give it while you're living so you're knowing where it's going. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, and then the other one that comes to mind is the, uh, you know, I don't think you get credit for things you give away when you're dead. And it's certainly, <laughs> yeah. I mean, well said. And, and, and uh, giving it when you, you know what I mean? Or there's no sacrifice, there's no joy, there's no interaction. There's, I don't know. I just, but, I, but isn't that countercultural? I, I think most people think of maybe, you know, leaving it in a will or something is the, is the best way to go. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure that's going to talk about much, does it? Giving it while you're living? 
Yeah, I, I think everybody's got to follow their own uh, path on this, but I, I think being intentional about thinking about it, why you still have your acumen, because, you know, I manage a couple trusts. My original partner, I thought, you know, unfortunately, he he got some pretty severe dementia during the last five or six years, and it was difficult to deal with him. But I think had he, I think in the back of his mind, he would always deploy the money himself before he died. And he, in an estate plan, and it was set up, but it was half-baked and probably not as perfect as he would have liked it. And had he kept his mind for as long as he lived, he might have made some different choices or at least been able to communicate with his family what he was doing and why, because some of that left some gaps and caused some heartache uh, within his family. And so I don't want that. You know, I've, and Leanne and I are, you know, we had our you know, family meeting and it was the, uh, really beautiful because our kids are now old enough to understand. Yeah. You know, they're not going to, they have to work. Right. Are they going to have a leg up on everybody else that didn't get something from their parents? Yes. But we're not going to give them too much that they don't have. A leg up, but not two legs up on the couch, as we like to say. Yeah. <laughs> I need to hang around you more and get some of the good stuff. I kind of do this for a living, so I, I got a million of them. Okay, I got a million of them. Uh, I mean, all right. You, 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 you tell there. Okay, now there's something else. I want to uh, ease out something you told me before, which is uh, really, I circle it when you said it, a wisdom count. Will you talk about what is a wisdom count? Okay, so I did the, the actual title came from a ministry at our church where anybody that had a need that they could want some advice, they could go to the, the head of the wisdom council and and they could actually ask for certain people or whatever, but it would be a one-time meeting to go through it. It might be a career move, might be, you know, I've sat on one where somebody's trying to make a decision on office space for their business. It was, sometimes it's about parenting kids. Sometimes it's, you know, it's whatever need, but I think it, it would be a great opportunity for a lot of ministries to have a wisdom council of it and the nice thing about it and i think this is what appealed to both you and i it's a one-time meeting right you have seven experts or people with a lot of wisdom sitting at the meeting person comes in the first half hour 45 minutes explains the situation as much facts as they they feel comfortable sharing to get it out there so you know they can get some good feedback then they get feedback from people around the table. And, and the ones I've had, there's often been a lot of clarity by the time that process is over on how to make a decision. It's beautiful. So, so I really love this idea. And if somebody's listening to this and they're considering a career change or a, you know, a sale of a business, you know, we got a bunch of business owners, maybe even something big uh, with their family, you know, another adoption. I, it could be a million different things. But they're a little stuck into me. Not every church maybe has a, you know, uh, a way of doing that for them. But would you say they just invite friends of their, what, what, how would you suggest they put this thing together? You know? Well, I think for me, I, you know, I've done it informally with my old friends, but I'm blessed at, at, in a, a, a very populated area with a lot of access to a lot of really talented people. 
So, you know, I have my own friends that, that I, you know, garnered, you know, wisdom from. I mean, Proverbs always tells us, you know, kill on advice. You'll have a lot better shot at it. And how to do that, you know, let's say you're not in a metro area or, you know, I would try to go to the church and say, okay, yeah, whatever, you know, church you're involved in and say, hey, is there a group of people that I could access to help me sift through this decision? And I think that that would be, A, it's a, it's a, it's a great step because the person asking for help has to be open to help. And like most poor decisions, well, I shouldn't say most, many poor decisions are made because people won't ask for it. Yeah. And, and what I'm getting is, I mean, you're still doing it. And so, you know, maybe you're never too uh, successful or you don't age out of needing other people's input in things. Is that fair? Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I've, I, I still have partners in every business and we talk all the time. And then when we're stopped or thinking about it, my partners go to their friends and I go to my friends and we try to, you know, and there's a, Lots of secular organizations that would provide that. But I think the church would be a better place because we come at it with a little better view of what the ultimate goal is to improve God's kingdom and glorify him and our behavior. And I'm humble because I'm not perfect. I am a sinner thrown through. I've been in the ditch. I've had friends have to pull me out of the ditch at times. I'm not the perfect person, and I, I don't want anybody to think that. And that was one of my reluctance to come in here because, you know, people know me. Hey, he's a sinner. What's he talking about? You know, yeah, I'm not perfect. At this stage in my life, am I better than I was when I was 30? Yep. I'm closer to God. I've got more of his heart in my heart. He's transformed me more. I think he continues to do that, which is the exciting part of this stage of life. I did would like to say maybe one other thing too for people that are because I see kids with kids you know the 30 40s at that stage of life is a lot of effort this is without a doubt and I've talked to many of my friends who have a great faith the sweetest time of life God has transformed some stuff he's worked on us take things less seriously that aren't as important and we're rewarded with just a lot more joy and a lot more fun within our faith and within our lives. It's not perfect, but it's much better than it was. Yeah, I've, I've actually seen these studies where they say that actually, even in secular society, the older you get, the happiness continues to rise. I think maybe because of that perspective, and I think in the faith world, the more perspectives you can add on there, the better the joy is for sure. Absolutely. That's true. You know, and I think this wisdom council is an amazing practical tip, but Jerry, as you know, we always try to wrap these podcasts up with just a practical tip. I always picture just talking about earlier, you and me just sitting around having lunch and I'm asking you about your story and we just happen to record this for some of our friends and uh, we're just a couple of business uh, guys, uh, trying to get better. And, uh, uh, and so 
somebody on this podcast who maybe is a little behind you on the journey. And, uh, yeah, maybe they're even in the rut a little bit, you know, how, what can they do tomorrow after they listen to this? Is there a practical tip? Maybe it's the wisdom council. Maybe it's, I mean, you've given us a bunch of pearls of wisdom today, but as I ask this question, is there maybe just one thing that comes to mind, something they, they can do tomorrow to kind of get on this journey, just on a little slightly to plane tomorrow? Well, I, I think I'd use the one I've used with my kids occasionally, and that is, because I'm kind of a boring, stay-at-home kind of guy at my core, but I don't think I can change the world. And I tell them, don't start with thinking you can change the world. But what you can do is you could help somebody do something. So when you wake up, be kind, do something for somebody, go out of yourself, give to somebody else that needs it more than you do. And if it's just one person, you're still doing the right thing. I don't think we have to look at, you know, and let's take the bite of the elephant one bite at a time, which I think is a grotesque visual, but um, I, I, I think the concept is, is correct. And that is just do something good. Goodness is good. God is good. And you will gain joy from that. And I don't care what kind of economic place you're in, what kind of sorrow you're in, uh, you know, if you're in the, in the rut, those kinds of acts help you get out, I think. And I've had bouts of where I wasn't happy for months. Um, and often what brought me out of those faults was not I landed some great deal and made me feel good. It's, I saw somebody that I helped get some benefit from that. And I mean, that interesting. The, the, the words that I wrote down were awareness. I mean, these are things that I'm going to try to do tomorrow from this. Be a little more aware of the things around me. Because I think I'm, even if I'm walking down the street, I'm, sometimes I'm thinking too much about myself, you know? Like, you know. Yeah. And, and then, and then uh, start small. It doesn't have to be some grand gesture. It could just be some small thing for in your, uh, in your field of sight, if you will. And God will give them to you. You know, I, yeah. even for when I was too busy, my favorite verse still is, be still and know I'm God. Mm-hmm. So, 4610. And there's one translation that really struck out to me. It's, you know, it said, instead of being still, it's a stop stripe. Because we strive so hard. We're always striving. And when I'm striving, I'm not listening as much as I want to. Mm. The sweetness of this time of life where I don't have to strive as much to compete. And, oh, man, it's got good. God is so good. Well, Jerry, uh, thank you so much for uh, uh, sharing your journey with us and so many practical uh, golden nuggets, as I call them, of, uh, of tips for those listening. Uh, thanks again for being with us today. Thank you, Jeff. Take care. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to this week's Terrace Business Owner Podcast. Please uh, leave us your ratings and reviews and share it with your friends, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. 
Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.